This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. Hosting a daily morning podcast show is taxing on both the mind and the body, especially when it comes to loading up on carbs, sugars, and other unhealthy breakfast foods. So I can't tell you how thrilled I am to have discovered my new breakfast of choice, Magic Spoon. With its zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving, Magic Spoon is healthy and delicious cereal. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And it comes in four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and my own personal favorite, blueberry. Magic Spoon, cereal that tastes too good to be true. Go to magicspoon.com forward slash keen on to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code KEENON at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash keenon and use the code keenon for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Good. December the 18th, everyone. Friday, December the 18th, the last proper weekend before Christmas. And America is finally turning, turning its attention away from Donald Trump and towards Joe Biden. Uh, we have more and more of his transition updates leaking through. There's a lot of drip, drip about that. We're hearing that he's going to receive a, a COVID-19 vaccine publicly on Monday, and more and more people now are giving him advice about what he should be doing in the presidency. Uh, one uh, New York Times piece is telling him how to reform the presidency. Bob Gates is telling him, uh, uh, former foreign policy influencer is telling him how to re re-architect American foreign policy. And of course, there are all sorts of pieces about how Biden should deal with uh, Trump himself. Um, the question, of course, still remains who this guy Joe Biden is. One person who's given a lot of thought to that is my guest today. Evan uh, Osnos is the author of Joe Biden. Uh, and what I'm intrigued with, actually, in this in this book, uh, Ev, is that uh, 
The two titles in the UK and the US are very different. The subtitles both come with, of course, a nice picture of Joe. Uh, both are by Evan Osnos, uh, who is the winner of the National Book Award for a previous book about China. But the subtitles are very different. The American subtitle is The Life, The Run, and What Matters Now, a very realist take on Biden, whereas the British subtitle is American Dreamer. So, Ev, easy one to start off with. Is, is Biden a realist or a romantic dreamer or down-to-earth uh, nuts and bolts guy from Delaware? I suppose another way of posing the question is, you know, a, a version of the old line about politics that you you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. And in a sense, uh, his campaign was about being an American dreamer. And he was sort of trying to drag us up to our better angels in one way or another, at least appeal, see if they still existed deep within. Uh, but then the functional uh, unglamorous reality is that when it comes to governing, he will have to be a realist. Uh, there aren't all that many idealists here in Washington in 2020. Um, but I, I mean, I really don't actually think, and I think it, uh, let me put it a different way. I think that in an important way, Joe Biden actually really is an idealist, that he is somebody who even after 48 years in politics, believes that politics is a fundamentally decent way to spend your day and that it is not a process ultimately of pulling us apart, but that you can do things that might actually make people's lives a little better and maybe pull people together. And that is a, you know, that's positively, Andrew, a radical notion at this point uh, in this country. Evan's subtitles, of course, reflect national cultures as well. Do you think that people outside America have responded to Biden more positively than people within America. Obviously, whatever it was, 80 plus million people voted for him. But my sense is there's not a lot of enthusiasm for him, even amongst the people who voted for him, whereas outside people still perhaps believe in the American romance more than inside. Is that fair? I think that's well put. I mean, I've been struck by the reaction to the book, for instance, around the world, there is this craving, I think, to try to understand who this guy is, and not just because he's the incoming president, but because he is so different from the man he replaces. I mean, he is just stylistically and personally, let's state the obvious, they're both older white men in their eighth decade, so the, the, the differences are not that far. But when it comes to their to their presentation of what they think about what it means to be American and what it means to be a leader and how you should talk to other human beings. I mean, in that respect, they're so different. I, I do think that there is there is this there is this appetite abroad to try to imagine that we still have this thing in the United States that made us worthy of intrigue and admiration in some small way. I don't want to overstate it. But, you know, Andrew, I had an interesting moment recently. I was with a, a European ambassador in Washington, and you know, we got around to this question, as inevitably we would, about whether the United States has lost its bid for any kind of exceptional status in the world. And I was, I suppose, bemoaning our condition. And this host, uh, this European ambassador said, I wouldn't go quite so fast and say that. The truth is that you still 
almost miraculously and bizarrely have this capacity as a people to believe that you can change yourselves and that you can change the world by your actions. You don't believe that you're born into whatever condition is ultimately your fate. And that strange and persistent fact about Americanness is not gone. And I, I think Biden in some ways is a is a, a, a walking version of that idea simply by the fact that he himself has changed over the course of his life. And your book does a great job, uh, Evan, uh, describing the ups and downs of his life, the outrageous uh, fortune, both in a, in a very good, I think you quote his best friend who said that Biden has had the, the luckiest and the unluckiest life simultaneously. Uh, and that seems very convincing given his political fortune. He, I think even he would admit he's not perhaps the smartest or the most brilliant of politicians. And yet the, the, uh, the tragedies in his family, uh, obviously the, the death of his wife and his daughter and then his son is, is appalling. Uh, uh, and on the other hand, of course, there's the physical Biden, which doesn't change. You have this wonderful description uh, of Biden. And maybe I'm being superficial because I always think of Biden physically. Uh, you write, Biden is 67 years old. He has parted with youth grudgingly. And you, and you write that brilliantly. His smile has been rejuvenated to such a gleam that it inspired a popular tweet during the 2012 campaign. Biden's teeth are so white, they're voting for Romney. His hairline has been reforested, beautifully put again. His forehead appears becalmed, and Biden generally projects the glow of a grandfather just back from the gym. How important should we pay attention to, 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 to Biden's physical appearance? It's always been, of course, an obsession mm. uh, with American presidents. But given the fact that he does appear, in perhaps in contrast to, to Trump, like an old man, like an old grandfather, a sprightly one, a, a healthy one, but nonetheless an old man. Is this something that is important that we should be concerned about or that we should actually celebrate? Ev? Yeah, I, you know, I, I gravitated to the decision to write about him physically for all the reasons that I think you captured, which was in effect each one of those little indicators that I decided to mention are an indicator of something else. You know, they are an insight either into his self-narrative of how he understands his own life, the fact that he did succeed so young, you know, elected to the Senate at the age of 29. In a sense, he's a little bit, I think, kind of trapped in amber in his own imagination because after all, that was the imprint of success. And uh, it was a miracle, as you as you know in the book. No one expected him to win. He won by a couple of thousand votes and it, it wasn't a great victory in any sense really it just was a bit of luck but it was a kind of act of of sort of magical thinking i mean to even run at all he was going against this giant of delaware politics the idea that this nobody joe biden was going to win was lunatic and he won um by by kind of sheer will in effect um and but i think to your point about age now I think it's important to acknowledge it. I mean, one of the reasons why I put it early in the book was to essentially say to the reader, look, I, I understand all of us do that we are constantly, when we're looking at him, we're trying to measure whether he's up to the task. And you know, we did something interesting, I, sort of surprising for this book. Uh, we decided to do 
to include in the audiobook edition some selections of my interview with him this summer. And um, this was partly because I had the impression after listening to this interview, and actually after a, a bunch of other people had listened to it too, editors at The New Yorker and so on, that people were sort of surprised to hear him give these quite long and intricate answers to, and I don't mean long in a jokey way, I mean that he was giving quite in-depth answers in a way that we don't often hear on the debate stage when you're talking for five or 10 seconds and then something happens. And I think it was a chance to try to give people a little bit more of an insight into his, in a sense, it's a, another insight into his physical condition. Listen to you, listen to him and decide for yourself how you think he is. What concerns me as, as somebody who's sympathetic and hopes he, he, he becomes a, a good, if not great president, is the fancifulness of the American public, especially when it comes to imagery. I had David Thompson, the film, very distinguished film critic on the show last month, mm. who was arguing that there needs to be a book written about Trump's ability to dominate the camera. The mm -hmm. weird thing about Biden is even when he's center of the camera, he doesn't dominate. He's marginal. He's peripheral. Do you think people are going to get bored and disappointed? Is there a, a bit of Gerald Ford or, or Jimmy Carter in Biden? And it's an, a really interesting question, actually. It's been on my mind a lot, partly because there is the new Jimmy Carter biography out right. um, with an altar. And Carter's a great test case for what we believe about charisma and the camera and essentially the moral value of a president. I mean, if you took Jimmy Carter, he was a kind of disappointing figure in his presidency. He was that, uh, in a way, kind of a recessive figure that didn't grab the moment, certainly not the way that his successor did. If I'd anticipated this, uh, Evan, as I should have, I would have had a photo of Jimmy Carter in his cardigan, which... <laughs> all the the visual disappointment of the Carter presidency. Yes, I think that you know the sales of buttons never recovered after that after that photo. But what then of course you have to append to that the fact that Carter spent has spent the rest of his life as a moral giant. I mean the man has done something that other presidents have not done, uh, which is to go out and make his life one of service afterwards. Uh, mm. And a person of real of really extraordinary um, example. And so Biden, I think, is, what's interesting to me about him is that early in his career, he had more of that ability to own the stage. I mean, we forget it now, but if you go back and you read Richard Ben Kramer's epic, wonderful portrait of Biden in 1987, 88, he was actually somebody who really was, uh, had a little bit more of that Bill Clinton quality of kind of seizing every camera. But the one we see today is a more muted figure. And I came to conclude that it's much to his benefit and to our benefit that he is that way. Well, I let's hope so. And let's hope that people are so bored of Trump hogging the camera and the internet and, and, and every other visual imagery that they will embrace him. Uh, Evan, you've spent a lot of time overseas. You were a correspondent in China. You've written books about China. And I know you're very concerned about the appearance and perhaps the reality of decline in America. Um, we've had a number of shows about this decline. We had the Princeton historian 
Harold James on the show yeah. earlier this year, suggesting from a foreign policy piece that America was in its dying days. And there was a, a, a piece earlier this year comparing Biden with Brezhnev. Um, is there an element here? I mean, leaving aside Biden, given the decline and the crisis of, of America, of American democracy, of American capitalism, are there equivalents with other historical systems that have come crashing down? Well, I will say I'm, you know, I'm old enough to remember when there was a wave of books comparing us to Rome around the, I would say, kind of second half of the Bush administration. But those and, were good. Those books are still relevant. Exactly. I In fact, I, so I and I as a person who sort of engages with that, that question a lot, I mean, I think about these issues of what makes societies thrive and fail. When I was in China, for instance, um, I remember reading a book by, uh, I think I, I may get his name wrong, Damon uh, Asimoglu, the, uh, an economist. Yeah. I'm sure I'm doing terrible damage. The MIT, he did a great job pronouncing him, better than me, the, the <laughs> MIT economist. Exactly right, MIT I pronounced correctly. And you know he did this book called Why Nations Fail. And interestingly, I'm telling a story on myself, I'm afraid, I was reading it to try to understand China's perils in 2013. And now I look at that same book and I wonder whether there are lessons in there for us in the United States. However, I will say, you know, I read a, a terrific book in draft recently, a manuscript by uh, a China scholar named Ryan Haas uh, that is coming out called, the book is called Stronger. And one of the, the lines he has in there is that by his count, we're on our sixth round of declinist narrative since World War II. Uh, there was one around Sputnik. There was one around the OPEC oil crisis. There was obviously one around Iraq. And they're not, it doesn't, you know, just because they've been wrong before doesn't mean they're not wrong either cumulatively or eventually. Um, what I do is I tend to think of it slightly differently. I, I don't see us as in our Brezhnev moment in the sense that we're on the cusp of disillusion and collapse. I see us more as on the moment of, uh, of a reckoning, a humbling. And I think we're probably, we were overdue for a humbling. Of that's that. a very, uh, it, 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 I don't take this critically, uh, Evan, but that's a very American way of putting it. <laughs> I don't think that's a compliment. Well, it, uh, it's suggesting a, a potential uh, resurrection. One of the things I really liked about the book, um, and this won't come as a surprise, I think, to, to, to many people, is, is how important family is to Biden. You, 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 you wrote this piece for The New Yorker a few years ago, We Biden's an American Family. One of the stories I didn't know was when um, Axelrod was, was, was interviewing VP candidates for Obama, uh, he went down to talk to Biden and was really struck with the uniqueness of the Biden family. Mm. Um, how special is this family and, and, and what could conceivably its meaning be in America in an, a Biden administration? I, I came to attach a lot of, of importance to it. I mean, I, for people who don't know the story of Axelrod going to see him, it's worth just mentioning in a sentence or two that Axelrod went down to Delaware to go see Biden when he was vetting him for the vice presidency. And it was this little instantaneous moment that captured his attention, which is that Biden and, and his son, Beau, were saying goodbye at the end of lunch and they kissed each other on the face. And Axelrod went back to Washington 
and said to President-elect Obama, you know, there's this other thing about Biden. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something special about this family, about the depth of their connection, about the intensity of their bond, which was partly, after all, a product of the fact that Bo Biden was nearly killed when he was a toddler and that Joe Biden, the single dad, ended up raising him. Um, but there is also a darker side to that intensity of the family connection. And I think the reality is that, you know, there is a, that when Bo died in 2015, that was right in the period when Hunter Biden was unraveling by his own description. And I would, you know, recommend the work of my colleague at The New Yorker, Adam Entis, who's written in, in a lot of detail about Hunter Biden's kind of uh, struggles with drugs and alcohol. And eventually that kind of bled into his business life. But all of that was happening almost simultaneously. And I think um, there is a, a way in which the Biden family has never really used family as a prop in quite the way that it's generally used in Washington. There's something actually that's more organic and personal about what what their family is um, that is a product of, of pain. And for that reason, it makes it a subject of immense literary uh, interest. And I think you'll probably read more about that in some of the fuller biographies to come. Politically, though, I'm not sure what you do with family, given that the crisis, particularly in white working class America, revolves around the breakdown of family. What What is Biden supposed to stay? Stay married, don't cheat on your wives, remain a committed parent. Uh, that's something that sounds uh, in, in some ways rather patronizing and pointless in an America where the family in the underclass or the, the lower class or the working class, whatever words you use, uh, is in crisis itself. I think the way he talks about it is generally in the language of dignity is what catches my attention. And he sometimes goes back to the image of the father, or we could update it and say uh, a, a breadwinner, uh, male or female, who loses a job, as so many people are right now. And in the loss of that job, it's not just the income, but it's a sense of personal worth and a sense of where they fit into the family and where they fit into a community and what they sort of see themselves as, as citizens, I mean, as, as participating members of society. And so his view of the economic um, failures that have rippled through so much of what we think of as Trump's America is really informed by his image of how a person is affected by the gain or loss of respect, even in the eyes of their own children. And I find that actually quite compelling. I, I ended up uh, I ended up thinking a lot about that. And it happens to inform, you know, the way that I think about this period of contending with the virus and the recession. Um, that we're and not it's, yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting this family thing because I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about Trump, but the one area that is always surprising about Trump is the, the loyalty of his kids. I remember in the debate uh, with Hillary when Hillary was asked at the end if there was anything about Trump that she, she could say positively, she said, well, he seems to be a good father. And the Trumps, for better or worse, even if they seem to many of us to be a, a very troubling family on many levels, seem to have stuck together. How would you compare... Trump's notion of family and Biden's notion of family, and indeed the Biden-Trump families in comparison? 
That's an interesting one. I haven't ever thought about it as putting them side by side. I think, um, you know, in a way, I suppose the Trump family does see itself as part of a lineage. Um, I think one of the things that, that strikes me as a difference is Joe Biden talks about his father and his mother constantly. And they gave him a grand total of about that much in life. They gave him no money and they gave him a lot of folksy old aphorisms. And he never sees himself as disconnected from everything that came before, all the way back to the, you know, what 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 we would call the matriarchs and the patriarchs, but you know, he calls the old country in Ireland. And Trump, who more or less inherited most of what he started his career with and most of what he lost along the way from his father. And you never hear him talk about his father in that way. That is a piece of history that he obscures. And so in a way, they they regard themselves quite differently in relation to the advantages that are bequeathed upon any individual and how they are able to, to navigate uh, the world as a result. I think one thing we can say for sure, Evan, is that... Uh... I'm sure Biden has some nieces. They're not going to come out with a best-selling psychological expose on him. Um, I never know, but I doubt it at this point. Yeah, well, if they're watching, I'll be interested in that book. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that Bob Gates uh, has a piece uh, in the Times this morning giving Biden advice on on how to re-architect the American relationship with the world. And I found that interesting from your book, uh, Evan, because I didn't know this either, that Gates and Biden actually have a rather needling kind of relationship. Um, uh, we've had a lot of talk on this show about America's new role in the world. We had the, the DC uh, geostrategist uh, Charles Kukchan on the, on, the, on, the, on the show talking about American exceptionalism. Do you see Biden rethinking American foreign policy or is he stuck? Is he imprisoned in a post-Trumpian international system? I don't think he's stuck in that. I, I would argue that he might be stuck in another risk, which is he's su- stuck to some degree in a, a 2009 uh, Obama moment of going out into the world and trying to restore America's credibility after the failure in Iraq. And you know, you remember, of course, Obama received his Nobel Prize to which his first reaction was, for what did I receive this prize? I mean, it was actually a terrible sort of onus to bear as he went into the presidency. Um, But it was a measure of how the rest of the world was looking for some sign of redemption of, of the US coming back. I think there's a risk that Biden believes that he can go out into the world and say to people, I'm decent, I am honest and I'm and I'm therefore a sign of the US coming back from Trump and it won't happen quite that way. I think there is a lot of scar tissue that will be that will have to be uh dealt with and it may never be dealt with. I think the the question of whether the United States can regain the position it's had for for most of the post-war years um is changing. I mean, I've been thinking recently that we're going to need to perhaps begin thinking of that period of the sort of exceptional United States beginning more or less with 1945 and extending up 
uh, until the end of the Cold War and, and beyond for, uh, I suppose, until about 2001, that that period is, is, looks to us more like an exceptional period rather than the default condition. And for Americans, that's hard to process. Um, well, and, Americans of a, yeah. a coastal variety, I'm not sure if, 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 if other Americans would agree. You note that you think Biden might be honest. Honesty is an important issue in the book. One person I would have never associated with Joe Biden, his polar opposite, is the, the German political philosopher Hannah Arendt. But you note in the book that when Biden was much younger in Congress, he wrote to Hannah Arendt about a piece she wrote about presidential lying, their inability in America to tell the truth. We had uh, Eric Altman on the show, uh, who, who, who has a, a new book out, uh, Lying in State, The History of American President's Dishonesty. Can we expect Biden to be a little bit more truthful? Or is he still ultimately a politician inside the beltway who never really tells the truth? Well, he, I think we have to begin to come up with a more fine-grained taxonomy for lying in Washington. And I, it sounds like Eric Altman may have done that for us. Fair enough, yeah. I mean, Donald Trump just completely blew out of the water some of the conventional definitions of things like propaganda, spin, puffery, all of these kind of now look quite quaint descriptions. Um, I mean, I sort of grieve for the fact that Hannah Arendt is not here to help us update uh, our understandings of propagandistic behavior. In well, I think if anything would have killed Hannah Arendt, it would have been Donald Trump. <laughs> I, I think that may be right. Um, but I will tell you something from my experience of dealing with Biden, that one of the things that one of the things that kept me coming back to see him honestly, is that he was not lying to me in a kind of, in a way that I could discern. Now, look, I'm not, I'm not deluded into thinking he wasn't spinning. And I was aware of it a lot of the time. But what one of the things that comes through in your in, in one's encounters with him is that his, his, his powers of spin are sometimes overwhelmed by his determination to say what he's actually thinking. And that is quite um, addictive, actually, particularly. Well, it's addictive, but, but you, you, you brought up Jimmy Carter before. Jimmy Carter, in part, was brought down by his, his tendency. Maybe it was a quality to tell the truth. We remember the famous interview he gave to Playboy magazine about lust in his heart. Uh, we had Rick Perlstein on the show recently talking about Reagan land. Reagan was certainly someone who wasn't able to tell the truth and made him a, a great president. Uh, you compare Biden, you have some other illusions uh, in, in the book. Uh, the two presidents who, who come up most of all in your comparison in terms of Biden emulating are LBJ and, of course, uh, FDR. Are these realistic comparisons given Biden's age and the nature of America today? Well, they're realistic in the sense that, uh, you know, he is, there's no perfect comparison. And in fact, he, he actually sort of, sees ways in which he is or is not like one or another. I, I, I think that the LBJ comparison is valuable in the sense that he is somebody who does understand the legislative branch and fundamentally believes that it can be wrestled into submission. Um, and he's also not somebody who the public expected to have a very progressive record. 
It was, in fact, a progressive activist who said to me, look, we sometimes have to remind ourselves it was Richard Milhouse Nixon who created the EPA. And so in a way, you know, Biden's moderation, his centrism can provide some useful camouflage for prosecuting a more progressive agenda because he's less likely to set off all of those tripwires on the right. Progressive agenda. Very briefly, uh, Evan, tell me where you think his priorities will be on the progressive front. We had Elliot Curry on the show last week talking about the the, the 162,000 African-Americans who have lost their lives to violence between 2000 and 2018. It's clear that Biden does have at least a political debt to the African-American community. Do you see him doing much on this front? Or is he, will, if, if he does leave a signature, is it more likely to be on the environmental front? Well, I think it's first going to be on the environment, partly because it's a conjunction of both the what he would regard as a kind of existential threat to the United States uh, of climate change, but also it's a it's quite good politics for him. Um, not only is it very popular on the left side of his party, but if you really look at the survey data, you discover that there is there's actually quite a bipartisan consensus on beginning to do more on climate. So that's number one. But I think that one of the unrecognized elements of his life at this stage is that he has come to see himself. Uh, almost sort of by sort of surprising himself a bit as somebody who um, has helped push forward the frontier of, if not racial justice, then at least nudging history forward. I mean, in the sense that he was, after all, began his career as an opponent of court-ordered busing. He was one of the authors of the crime bill in the 90s, and that was a, very much a part of his life. And then he found himself as the vice president to the first African-American president. And that ended up changing how he saw himself. I mean, Biden really did come out of the Obama presidency thinking of himself differently as somebody who could be of service in trying to advance the black freedom struggle. And I think South Carolina voters rewarded him for that. I mean, that is a, the reason why he is president is because, as, as you know, older black voters in South Carolina delivered it for him particularly and, females. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the reason they did it is because they saw him as a, in effect, a faithful, uh, a faithful servant of Barack Obama. I mean, that's not my language. That's actually coming from Cornell William Brooks, who is from South Carolina, a great civil rights activist who I spoke to for the book. And he said, that's how you have to understand how he was viewed in my community and why people turned out the way they did and changed the whole course of this race and indeed, you know, the course of political history. Yeah, Brooks was on my How to Fix Democracy. So show that your book is a, is a wonderful read, a tremendous introduction to Joe Biden. These parallel Bidens, the American dreamer, the American realist. It's clear to me, uh, at least, Evan, that you, you want him to be a dreamer. Uh, you, you, you end the book with reference to uh, Michael Sandel, the Harvard uh, political philosopher who we had on the show talking about his new book on meritocracy. Uh, I'm quoting you here. You say, in the tyranny of merit, Sandel wrote, even as inequality has widened to vast proportions, the public culture has reinforced the notion that we are responsible for our own fate and deserve what we get. If we succeed, it is thanks to our own doing. And if we fail, we have no one to blame but ourselves. In the age of 
pandemic and systemic injustices, Sandel argued, a lively sense of the contingency of our lot conduces to a certain humility. There, but for the grace of God or for the accident of birth or for the mystery of fate, go I. That, of course, refers to Biden in many ways. And this, mm. is, this is your final comment in your book. You say, Biden, ever the weather vane, was betting that America wanted a different politics. Are you asking Biden, Uncle Joe, to, to address this crisis of inequality? Uh, Evan in America, is that really alongside race and the environment? Is that his historic task to deal with the increasing chasm between the wealthy and the underclass in America today? Yeah, it is. I mean, to my mind, every issue is run through this mill of the 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 abject grotesque inequality in this country. It's just the numbers speak for themselves. We have not had a moment like this of such extremity in our economic differences uh, since the Gilded Age. And you can't solve these other problems unless you acknowledge the importance of that. And then, of course, it's it ramified through issues of race and gender and everything else. Um, but actually, curiously, the economic issues are a place that are sincere to him. I mean, they are an issue that he has been talking about for a long time. And, you know, I mentioned in the book that there was a moment in 2014 when he was going on to me about how he thought the Democratic Party was making a big mistake, leaving behind working people in the middle class. And and when he said it, I didn't get it. This was before Bernie Sanders was on the scene. It was before Donald Trump had come up. And I didn't realize that he was actually picking up on something in the air. There was an electricity. And I didn't quote it. And at the time, of course, he was figuring out where the politics was going. So the challenge for him, and I don't know if he if he's able to do this in in quite the with the severity that it requires, is that it will take a pretty hard hand on Wall Street to be able to say that the status quo is unsustainable. What he said to me is, I think they get it. I think they're ready for a change. But I'm not sure that that's probably going to go far enough for what needs to happen if we're going to try to stem the loss of confidence in capitalism. Well, if Joe Biden's watching then, Joe, rather than Brezhnev, we need you to be Lenin. Uh, <laughs> Evan Osnes' new book, Joe Biden, wonderful read in Britain. You can read about the American dreamer in the US, the life, the run and what matters now. Uh, Evan, I know you are stuck, if that's the right word, in Washington, D.C. in our strange times. I always, at the end of the show, ask people for a, um, a re recommendation of a book. I want to recommend one myself, which isn't your book, which is by your father, who appeared on my show, the first father-son combo, actually, in the history of this show. Uh, uh, you, This is when you were a much younger, you know, this is when I think you were a teenager, uh, you, you, he, he, he talks about you saying to your father, Dad, you remind me of Jane Goodall. You go to dinner with your notebook and your tape recorder and you say, isn't it amazing how they show affection for their young? Uh, this is from your father's new book, which is coming out, an especially good view. So that's my recommendation uh, for, a, for an interesting book uh, that is about to come out. Uh, is your father still, by the way, is your father still remind you of Jane Goodall? He does a bit. I'd say that's baked in at this point. He is uh, everywhere we go. He is an attentive observer. I mean, it's, 
His, well, you learned it, I guess, a little bit. I mean, you're a little bit of, there's a little bit of the Jane Goodall of it in you, in your evaluation of uh, Joe Biden and his family and his times. What else do people be reading, uh, Evan, in these strange times? You know, a book that made a big impression on me this year is a book called Homeland Elegies by Ayad Akhtar. And people may remember he won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago for a play that he wrote called Disgraced. And Homeland Elegies is a sort of fictionalized account of a life that is quite similar to his real life. Uh, but, you know, I don't get I'm not all that interested in trying to divine what's real and fake. What comes through is an extraordinary account of being an immigrant, being the son of an immigrant in this period in American life and its intersections with economics and politics and personal uh, anxieties. It's just an extraordinary piece of work. And, and uh, it's the kind of book that you remember a long time after you read it. Well, Evan uh, Osnes, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Um, and I think as this Biden presidency unfolds, whether he's Carter or LBJ or FDR or Reagan or Ford or whoever, we're going to need your expert guidance to identify him. So thank you very much. Happy My holidays and a happy and healthy new year. Here, thanks so much. I appreciate it, Andrew. That was great fun to be with you. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.